We have a lot of science topics we're going to tackle here in segment two today. One of the great things about science is it contains usually a lot of good news. And good news can come from some unlikely sources. In this case, intestinal worms. Reporting on a study in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology, New Scientist magazine noted last week that intestinal worms may not be totally bad news. A study of 1,600 children in Vietnam suggests that those infected with hookworm are only 60% as likely as uninfected children to be allergic to dust mites. We're seeing a worldwide increase in allergy, and a lot of people think this is uh, because certain uh, intestinal ailments are becoming less common. Uh, this, uh, this study provides support for that idea that allergic diseases have become more common as children are exposed to fewer infections. But it also suggests that theories for how this happens uh, may need some adjusting. And in a study report in the Annals of Neurology, uh, it was noted that parasitic worms could have an unexpected benefit. They could improve the prospects of people with autoimmune diseases such as multiple sclerosis. Parasites were already known to affect the progression of such diseases in animals. So researchers at the Raul Correa Institute for Neurologic Research in Buenos Aires, Argentina, wanted to know if it did the same in people. Researchers determined that those infected with parasites had fewer relapses and less deterioration in their condition than the parasite-free participants. So it appears that parasitic worms may enable us to make some breakthroughs in how the immune system uh, goes wrong and lead to some treatments in the future. It's exciting stuff. And uh, speaking of surprising developments in the, in the area of the immune system, researchers at the University of New Mexico for, performed DNA tests on 48 heterosexual couples to determine the nature of their immune system genes. Previous studies had found that women are attracted to men whose immune systems are of a different type than their own. And for reasons that no one's been able to quite explain yet, uh, your immune system diversity apparently affects how you smell, or at least how others perceive how you smell. Said this new study, a woman can tell whether a man is a genetically suitable mate simply by smelling him. <laughs> no, no, I'm not making this up. If a woman catches the scent of a good genetic match, said the researchers, she may feel a powerful urge to stray from her steady man. This research found to an amazing degree that a couple's genetic similarity predicted how likely it was that the woman had cheated on the man. If, for example, a married couple had 60% of their immune system DNA in common, the wife had a 60% likelihood of having slept with someone else. If they had almost no immune system similarity, the wife was highly faithful. These results strongly suggest that evolution has hardwired women to detect the best biological father to produce hardy offspring, which is one outcome of this genetic diversity. Psychologist Christine Garver Apgar told New Scientist magazine, we're fairly certain that all this revolves around scent. She said the next step will be to identify the specific chemical cocktail that signals a man's genetic makeup. And don't you guess that perfume manufacturers are going to find some of this stuff pretty interesting. All right, people are buying green tea everywhere. It's uh, reputed to be great for your heart, uh, but new studies say that's until you add milk. Both black and green tea varieties are well known to improve heart health over time. It's felt because component flavonoids called catechins relax the blood vessels. 
But when milk is added to a cup of tea, milk proteins interact with the catechins, blocking their heart-healthy properties. So I guess the moral of the story is add lemon, not milk. And in a study that will surprise no one that ever followed the antics of the Tobacco Institute in reporting uh, studies on smoking and secondhand smoke, etc., USA Today reported nutrition studies on food and beverages last month, uh, reporting that they were heavily influenced by the makers of those products. Researchers at Children's Hospital in Boston compiled a set of 206 studies on the health effects of beverages such as juice, milk, and soda, then compared the industry-funded studies to those funded independently. They found that while independent research yielded equal numbers of favorable and unfavorable assessments of the beverages, industry-funded research was overwhelmingly favorable. Study author David Ludwig noted that the, the fact that funding skews results is a huge big deal, saying, quote, conflict of interest in nutrition could affect everybody, unquote. But Ludwig suggested that we not blame this phenomenon on bad science. He said you should blame it instead on selective publishing. The industry is clearly choosing to sponsor studies that they think will reflect well on their products, and the results of unfavorable studies never see the light of day. And here's an item from New Scientist. It wasn't quite as bad as putting the fox in charge of the chicken coop. Still, the law takes a dim view when the head of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration fails to own up to profiting from soft drinks and food while determining policy on obesity. Lester Crawford uh, paid the price for this notable lapse last month. Crawford headed the FDA from 2002 to 2005 and pled guilty last year to conflict of interest charges. The most alarming of these was his failure to declare ownership of shares in the soft drink and food companies Cisco and PepsiCo while chairing an FDA working group on obesity in 2004. Said attorneys advising the court on sentencing, it does not take a lawyer to determine that the country's obesity czar should not own stock in corporations that produce fast food, junk food, and soft drinks. And speaking of lousy products, a lot of people have been coming into the clinic I work in of late noting that uh, they can't understand it. They've been taking um, Airborne and they still got sick. Perhaps you've heard their ads. Uh, It's reported that this was developed by a teacher who was tired of getting sick. This implies, of course, that this enterprising teacher sat down and put together some compounds that will keep you from getting ill from Airborne disease. They never actually say that, but That's what they imply. My advice, dear listener, is to save your money. If you pick up a box of Airborne, which I did in a pharmacy a few days back, you will note that it says right on the package, this product is not intended to cure, diagnose, treat, or prevent any disease. And the following item may take me a couple minutes to to read and explain, but I think it's going to be worth it. Wrote Andy Coughlin in the January 20th issue of New Scientist, It sounds almost too good to be true. A cheap and simple drug that kills almost all cancers by switching off their immortality. The drug, dichloroacetate, DCA, has already been used for years to treat rare metabolic disorders and so is known to be relatively safe. But it also has no patent, meaning it could be manufactured for a fraction of the cost of newly developed drugs. And it turns out this being an old drug is quite a hitch. Since it can't be patented, no pharmaceutical company is likely to fund costly clinical trials without some exclusive rights to make the drug. 
This is not a new problem. Many drugs are left on the shelf because companies cannot make lots of money from them. It has happened with drugs for diseases that affect mainly poor people in developing countries, such as TB, though there are now an increasing number of partnerships between governments, charities, and commercial companies to deal with these cases. Many drugs are left on the shelf because companies cannot make lots of money from them. It's a safe bet that drug companies will be falling over themselves to find patentable compounds with a similar action to DCA. Any of these reaching the market will be hugely expensive. Noted the magazine, it would be a scandal if a cheap alternative with such astonishing potential would not be given a chance simply because it won't turn a big enough profit. Be that as it may, DCA is really an exciting drug because it attacks a unique feature of cancer cells. The fact that they make their energy through the main body of the cell, if you think of an egg, basically the, uh, the white of the egg, rather than in distinct organelles called mitochondria. It so happens that cancer cells switch the, uh, how the cell generates energy to a process called glycolysis. This is uh, the same means by which yeast turn grape sugars into wine. The human body uses uh, basically the same process except for the last couple steps where the alcohol comes out, but it doesn't generate that much energy, so we rely upon these cells' powerhouses, the mitochondria, to generate most of our energy. Enter DCA. The drug boosts the ability of mitochondria to generate energy, and when given to cancer cells, it reawakened the mitochondria in those cells. Uh, those cancer cells then withered and died. It's a, it's a bit of pretty basic biology that's uh, pretty exciting with an old compound. The question is how rapidly is this going to come to market if drug companies can't, uh, you know, can't profit from a cheap, non-patentable compound. I must say, I always get pretty irked when I hear quacks like uh, health guru Gary Null claiming that uh, you know he can cure cancer with uh, celery juice and that medical science deliberately doesn't cure cancer to profit from it. But uh, this case involving dichloroacetate uh, does show that among all of that nonsense spouted by uh, quacks like Null, there, there's, there's a grain of truth. I feel fairly certain that if this drug can live up to its potential, uh, it's gonna get it's gonna get used, drug company profit or not. We mentioned a couple weeks back on the program how uh, scientists have now done a survey of the bacteria in our guts and discovered that the kind of bacteria that predominates may make us prone to obesity. Well, they've now uh, they've now done a similar survey of what grows on the outside of us and determined that there's something like 200 species of bacteria which uh, which which are growing on on every one of us. It turned out that eight percent of the bacteria growing on us had previously never been formally described by scientists. These studies of what's growing on the inside of us and what's growing on the outside of us is, is sure to, uh, to lead to some breakthroughs, but uh, exactly what those are going to be, well, no, no one can say just yet. And uh, here's a study I really hope that employers don't take <laughs> too much notice of. The University of Toronto asked some students to listen to music. Music was happy, sad, or neutral, and then asked them to complete some tasks that required them to focus. It turned out the students who rated themselves as feeling happy were 40% more likely to be distracted. Said lead researcher Adam Anderson, this phenomenon translates easily to offices. When employees are in a good mood, they'll want to talk with colleagues, email with friends, and surf the internet. When they're grumpy, 
they're more likely to close themselves off and plow through mundane tasks. This leads to the disquieting conclusion that cranky and unhappy people tend to be more productive workers. This is balanced off somewhat by previous research which suggested that people in good moods are more effective at creative thinking. And in giant collision news, we have two items. Astronomers using the Deimos spectrograph of the Keck telescope in Hawaii determined that the Andromeda galaxy uh, attained its present shape partially by virtue of an ancient galactic collision. Apparently, the Andromeda galaxy had a bit of a smash-up with a dwarf galaxy. Astronomers are hopeful that if they can calculate the Andromeda galaxy's total mass, once arriving at that value, they can help shed some light on the elusive dark matter that pervades the universe. Meanwhile, here on, uh, on planet Earth, geologists studying the Afar Desert in northern Ethiopia have observed that it is undergoing a rifting process at the rather remarkably slow speed of less than one inch per year. But it's been doing so for the past 30 million years, and the rifting has formed a 186-mile depression, as well as the Red Sea. Turns out that most of the places on Earth where you see this sort of splitting of crusts uh, takes place deep underwater. Turns out Ethiopia is the only place on the planet where one can see a continent splitting apart on dry land. Scientists have recently descended on Ethiopia because occasionally this buildup in pressure can lead to bursts of cataclysmic activity. In September of 2005, for example, a chain of earthquakes caused hundreds of deep fractures. In some spots, the ground shifted 26 feet and magma, enough to fill a football stadium more than 2,000 times over, was injected into a crack between these two plates of the Earth's crust. At some point in the future, when this uh, extends far enough, the Red Sea is going to pour its water into the area and have a new arm. But you may want to hold off on speculating on beachfront property because it's probably not going to take place for about another million years. Here's three basic biology items I stumbled on I thought were interesting. The food section of the Sacramento Bee noted a few days back that uh, you can get a lot of Haas avocados from Mexico about now because the peak of the season in Mexico is October to February, which is nicely complementary to our California crop, which peaks from January to September. This article simply noted that down in Michoacan, Mexico, where most of the avocados come from, the huge avocado trees were primarily used as shade for coffee bean plants. But then in the 1920s, around La Habra in Southern California, the Haas avocado was discovered. This particular variety became enormously popular. It became so popular that growers in Mexico began grafting the California Haas onto their orchards thus beginning their huge industry. I've always found it pretty amazing that one particular variety of, of a vegetable crop, a fruit a vegetable comes along, and it turns out to be so good, by chance, that human beings immediately take to it and propagate it all over the world. And here's a surprise. Scientists at Brown University studied bats flying in a wind tunnel. Previous studies along this line had compared the oxygen consumption among birds, insects, and bats of similar sizes. 
for example, a hummingbird, a small bat, and a large moth, and found that bats use less energy to fly. But until now, no one had an explanation for this. While their motions may seem erratic and graceless, the wind tunnel tests suggested that the secret to efficient bat flight lies in the fact that they have a flexible skin membrane and many jointed wings. A bat's wing contains more than two dozen joints that are overlain by a thin elastic membrane that can stretch to catch air and generate lift in many different ways. Said Sharon Schwartz, an associate professor of ecology and evolutionary biology, this gives bats an extraordinary amount of control over the three-dimensional shape their wings take during flight. And uh, this correspondent learned a bit of biology that I apparently did not pick up when I was a student here at uh, UCD. The Economist magazine, reporting on um, some fish genetics, revealed that bony fish, better known to scientists as teleosts, were, during the era of the dinosaurs, pretty much restricted to fresh water. Evidently, uh, cartilaginous fishes, such as sharks and rays, dominated the oceans, but about 55 million years ago, a meteoric diversification took place when the oceans were suddenly filled up with bony fishes. I don't know if there's any connection, but I read elsewhere that it was about this time, about 55 million years ago, that the Earth underwent a spike in CO2 levels, which wreaked havoc on uh, the planet's ecosystems. Global warming data seems to suggest that we're, uh, we may be in the middle of uh, that process repeating itself now. We will have to do some further research to see if there may be some connection. And in our final science item, we report that it could be that the mystery of ball lightning may have been solved. Throughout history, thousands of people have reported seeing ball lightning, which is described as a luminous sphere, which sometimes appears during thunderstorms. It's typically about the size of a grapefruit and lasts for several seconds or even minutes, sometimes hovering or even bouncing along the ground. No one's ever been able to reproduce a phenomenon that might explain what ball lightning might be, but down in uh, Brazil, a team led by Antonio Pavao and Gerson Pavaya took wafers of silicon placed them between electrodes, and zapped them with some strong currents. Over a couple seconds, they moved the electrodes apart, created a big electrical arc, and vaporized the silicon. As a result, the arc spat out glowing fragments of silicon, but also sometimes luminous orbs the size of ping-pong balls that persisted for up to eight seconds. These balls were able to melt plastic, and one even burned a hole in Paiva's jeans. So could ball lightning be the result of uh, conventional lightning striking soil and turning silica in that soil into some silicon vapor? Well, research will have to continue. You shake my nerves and you rattle my brain Too much love drives a man insane You broke my wheel, but what a thrill Couldn't it rage with balls of fire I left in love, but I thought it was funny But you came along and you moved me, honey I changed my mind, this love is fine, good and it's the ridge and greeting balls of fire. All right, I guess we were, we're partially caught up in some of our science stories and we need to take a break, so let's do that. I'm Douglas Everett, you're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm 
Everybody chose from Come on, baby, you drive me crazy Couldn't it be rigid? Great balls of fire 